0: We can disagree on some tenets of our faith. But we find in our foundation, Jesus, that we've sold out to. And I think it's important that we examine what is right and what is wrong in today's society. And sometimes that makes us politically unpopular. But at the end of the day, I don't want to be politically popular. I want to be grounded in Christ. And so here in Appalachia, we need churches, regardless of denomination, who love other people, who preach God's word week in and week out.
1: From Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute, this is the Level Paths Podcast. My name is Chris Weigel, and we're glad you've taken some time to join us. It's a bit of a different Level Paths Podcast for this episode. Rex is out of town, so Dr. Matt Shamlin is joined by Dr. Mark Phillips. Dr. Mark is a professor and the vice president of academics at Tri-State Bible College. The topic is the Nazarene Church in Appalachia. Appalachia is home to Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Catholic churches, and many others. But what about the Nazarene Church? What is its history, and where does it fit into the Appalachian landscape? The guest on this episode is Dr. Desmond Barrett, the lead pastor of Summit Church of the Nazarene in Ashland, Kentucky. Here's
2: Dr. Matt. Mark, how you doing? I'm doing well, brother. Appreciate the opportunity to sit in.
3: Well, it's great to have you, and we're going to be doing an interview with Dr. Desmond Barrett here in just a moment. Mark, would you take a moment and introduce yourself, so that way anyone who doesn't know you, they'll they'll know who they're listening to.
2: I've moved into a new role here at the Tri-State Bible College. I am now vice president of academics in addition to my teaching roles, which means I get an opportunity to work more closely with students and with the professors here. I kind of bridge those two to keep things running smoothly. Some of the courses I teach here include a number of apologetics courses, philosophy course for undergrads. Started here in spring of 2017 by teaching a course in Christ-centered counseling. So covered a lot of ground, been here for mostly six years. It's a good place to be. It's a good community of believers, many who have different denominational backgrounds, but we uh, worship a risen Savior whose body will not be divided. So we have an opportunity to listen to a number of different viewpoints of different distinctives. It's one of the things I treasure here to learn more of the history of the various faith communities around us. So thank you for having me today.
3: Well, glad you could join in this podcast. Mark is not only my dear friend as an academician, but he's also just a dear brother in Christ, and I'm thankful for him. Another dear brother in Christ is Dr. Desmond Barrett. Dr. Barrett, welcome to the podcast again. You're one of the first guys that we've had back twice, and so
0: we're glad to have you back. Well, thanks so much. It is great to be back. You know, I'm a Christ follower, a husband, father, pastor, a revitalization coach. I'm an author, community focused, and my heart is to serve the local church, regardless if you're five people in your local church or 5,000. I believe God has called us and trained us and equipped us for a season just as this. And that's where my heart is as a local pastor, but also as someone who's coming up alongside other churches and local pastors who are struggling in this season. And so It's great to be with you today.
3: Desmond, it's great to have you on the podcast, and I love the things that you write. You have a great podcast.
0: Tell us the name of the podcast again. I... Uh do a weekly podcast called Revitalizing the Declining Church with Dr. Desmond Barrett. It's a great podcast. If you are in the midst of a revitalization effort or you're thinking about it, it's about a 10 to 12 minute podcast on a weekly basis. So it's a good car drive podcast, and it's just to encourage, to challenge, and to make you think as a local pastor and lay leader in the local church that may be going through revitalization.
3: Desmond has a background in leadership, and so there's a lot of positive, helpful input that you'll get from this podcast. He often writes for Outreach Magazine, so you can see the articles there. And he's written one book and another one will be coming
0: out soon. Is that right? The third book is getting ready to come out. Uh, revitalizing Declining Church came out in 2021, and it's 10 stories about 10 great churches that had a turnaround. And in addition, through subtraction, revitalizing the established church came out earlier this year. And then, uh, revitalized to replant. It's in the editing phase, so it may come out early next year or even later this year, and then next year, two more books will come out that I'm doing with co-authors about uh, leadership in the church, eight principles, and then one focused on missions, but neighborhood missions. Those are books you need to get.
3: You can get those uh, through Amazon. Is that right?
0: That's correct. It help us support my family. That's what I always joke with people. But really, at the end of the day, it's a tool to help our local churches and our pastors uh, begin to think anew. I, I think in this discouraging season, we need encouragers. And I believe God has called me to be a Barnabas in our midst.
3: Well, brother, you are an incredible encourager, and uh, I know that this is going to be an encouraging episode of the Level Paths podcast, where we want to see the mountains flattened, the valleys raised, so that the glory of God will be in clear view. So as we think about this, Desmond really comes from a different camp than a lot of our listeners. A lot of our listeners have Baptist or Southern Baptist backgrounds, and Desmond comes from the Nazarene camp, and so it's exciting because... Those with Arminian theology have an incredible background in Appalachia because really it wasn't the Catholics, the Presbyterians, or even the Baptists that evangelized Appalachia. It was really the Methodists and the Nazarenes and the Charismatics and the Pentecostals. They were the ones through which God used in incredible ways to see Appalachia evangelized. And so Desmond's the pastor of Summit Church of the Nazarene. It's really just a few miles down the street from. Rose Hill Baptist Church, where I pastor. Desmond and I are great friends. I love this dear brother. He often picks on me about the length of my sermons, and I pick on him about the length of his. Mine tend to be a little bit longer. His tend to be a little bit shorter. But I love this brother. So Desmond, would you give us a history, a short history of the Nazarene movement, especially here in Appalachia?
0: Yes, uh, Dr. Phineas Brzee, the principal founder of the Church of the Nazarene, came out of the Methodist Episcopal Church. And so, it was in the 1890s that he believed God was calling him into entire sanctification. Now, what separates us from many denominations is this major doctrine difference, which came out of John Wesley's spiritual perfection idea or thought process. And so, Dr. Phineas Brzee, the principal founder, he believed that we didn't have to sin on a daily basis, that it was a choice, that yes, we were born into sin, but we didn't have to live into sin. And that separates us from some doctrines, and and for others, we can agree. But what he was saying is that literally, you can be totally sold out. That's the entire, being totally sold out that you don't sin anymore, that you can live a sin-free life. Now, I got to let you in, and I'm still struggling with that, meaning I believe that I've given my life fully over over to Christ. I've done that at the altar. I fully sold out. But sometimes the devil does get in my thoughts, and sometimes my tongue says things I shouldn't say as a good Christ follower. And what we do as Nazarenes is that immediately we repent. We repent of our sins. We repent of what we said because we we are striving on a daily basis to be entirely sanctified, a believer with Christ.
3: So would it be wrong to characterize the Nazarene movement as a holiness movement then if we have the potential of absolute or complete sanctification?
0: Oh, absolutely. So when you look at holiness, we came out of the old holiness movement, and so we were part of the prohibition movement. We were a part of helping the poor and those that were downtrodden. You know, our sister denominations would be the Free Methodist Church, the Salvation Army, the Wesleyan Church, and the Church of God Anderson. So we have very similar doctrines, but we may administer the church, meaning church universal, a little differently, because what sets us apart from also many denominations is that we are a global church. We have one headquarters, and then we are in six continents, 164 world areas, three million members. And so we have six leaders, six general superintendents that are elected to four-year terms. And we're not autonomous, but yet we are localized at the same time, because we serve locally, in districts, in regions, and then, of course, globally.
2: My question would be uh, of a historical nature, What what's the time frame for the arrival of the church of the Nazarene in the Appalachians? And where did it come from and where did it spread from subsequently?
0: So we started in the 1890s in California where Dr. Finney's received Los Angeles. That's where he left Iowa and went to begin to minister. It was there that he developed the Church of the Nazarene. Where did we get our name? The word Nazarene literally is because of Jesus he began developing districts of churches all up the West Coast. Well, on the East Coast, there was Hiram Reynolds, and there was others that were from the North and the South that were having holiness associations. And it was in 1907 in Chicago that the East and the West gathered together and had their first General Assembly and became one, And then it was in 1908 in Pilot Point, Texas, that the rest of the United States, to make us truly from an east to west, north to south association of churches, came together. And within the first 10 years, So by 1918, we had become international by taking in the Scottish Holiness Churches, which then spread into Wales and into Great Britain, and then eventually would take over into Canada, Africa, India, as we began to evangelize around the world. And today we're in 164 world areas, which the majority of them represent whole countries.
3: So if this was a movement that started in the West, is that where the largest number of the Nazarene churches are today?
0: No, actually, the largest number of Nazarene churches would be in the South and in the Midwest and in this Appalachia region. We have been polarized as many denominations on our East Coast and our West Coast. And so if you go into the New England area, we are actually much smaller, where we have a frontier ministry of 27 churches in Alaska, for instance. But then you come into the Appalachia region and we could have districts that will have 50 to 110 churches inside their local district. So think about with the Baptists, they have associations. And in those associations that we would call districts, there would be 50 to 100 churches. And it makes it easier for one leader, the district superintendent, to then travel and to oversee those uh, districts. That's why they're, they're almost capped at about 100, 110, 120 before they break off and form a new district. There's now 81 districts in the United States and Canada, and that is considered a region, the North American region.
3: One of the most important features of the movement, the Methodist movement, was raising up the men who were already in the area. And as they raised those men up, the church obviously had a kind of a hierarchy within it. But on the local level, it was the impact of those men who raised up. Is that still the way that it is among the Church of the Nazarene? And what influence did that have in helping spread the movement across the South and then into Appalachia?
0: So Dr. Brzee said in the 1890s, God has called us to help Christianize Christianity. That was his radical view of go into all the world, regardless of where great churches already are, and to begin to share this holiness movement. So we are called to be Christian Holiness Missional. So since the very beginning, there's been two features of our denomination, education and missions. So today we have over 50 educational institutions in over 30 countries on six continents around the world. And so we value education. So you are raised up in your local church, you're raised up in your district, but ultimately we want you to continue your education. So in the Church of the Nazarene, there are 24 core courses that you would have to complete before you could even enter the ordination. That's part of the ordination track. So where some denominations will allow you locally to ordain someone locally for us, There are a board of ministry that allows you to track your education. They're basically agreeing or disagreeing that you're called and that you're completing the courses. But it is only the general superintendent who has jurisdiction over that region that can lay their hands on your head and ordain you an elder in the Church of the Nazarene. And so that process is a long time. So for instance, when I started the process in 2008, I wasn't ordained as an elder until 2014, even though I was already pastoring part-time and then full-time by the time I was ordained. So we value education. What's interesting about us, especially in Appalachia, is that the men were struggling with alcohol. They were struggling with tobacco. Some of the tenants that we say we encourage people not to get involved in because it has some vices that will take the value away from your local families. And so women were actually being raised up in eastern Tennessee and then into eastern Kentucky. More women became preachers, especially in between the 20s and 40s than men were. And in fact, around the Nashville area, that became pretty much a women-driven district, especially early on. Now, those numbers have completely transformed and less than 10%, in fact, 7%, the last statistics that I saw were women in the United States in the Church of the Nazarene. And so we pulled back from who we were at one time, ordaining women, allowing women to be in ministry. We still say that but ultimately it's our local boards the local church that would have to hire a woman and that's becoming more of a struggle for our women specifically in Appalachia in New England or in California or in the uh, northwest that is not the case they're more open to allow women but in Appalachia and in the south they've regressed in that area where we were even in the 1940s
2: you've used the term district superintendent now that's familiar to me i grew up in the Methodist church so now, whether you might be using the term differently, at least we have a touch point there, some familiarity. If women were coming in a century ago, and you mentioned the uh, the use of alcohol, were the Nazarenes involved in the temperance movement that particularly swept through this area as well nationwide? Were they? active prior to prohibition in getting the amendment, uh, working towards that amendment?
0: Yes, absolutely. So the original Church of the Nazarene is currently would be located where Skid Row is today in Los Angeles. And so Brazil always had a heart for the poor. Here in Appalachia, we're having one in five people are living in poverty. Just in Boyd County alone, nearly 20% of people are in poverty. And so we are called as Nazarenes to go where there's the hurting and the loss and the Brzee Saw the vices of alcohol and tobacco as the two main things that were hurting our families. Where men were going to the beer halls or the juke joints and they were really spending all of their income coming home drunk, beating their wives, not taking care of their family. And so Dr. Brzee felt strongly, especially early on, as being part of that prohibition movement that we had to not only temper ourselves from drinking, but we had to encourage others. So even today in the Church of the Nazarene, while we may not come out and say, do not drink, we do say drinking leads to A whole host of issues so let us continue to be pure in our bodies pure in our minds pure in our spirit and not even pick up a drink or not even pick up a cigarette but i'll let you in on a little secret are there nazarenes that drink are there Nazarenes that use tobacco? The answer is yes. And what we believe is that heart holiness comes along where God will fully cleanse them and they will become entirely sanctified where they will lay down whatever vice that's holding them back from a true relationship with Jesus Christ.
3: Just as listening to you talk, I see some elements there that make the Nazarenes fit perfectly within Appalachia, raising up the folks from the area ministering to those who are hurting and lower income those are absolutely vital in reaching Appalachia whether it be in the 1800s or whether it be today because Appalachia not only has one of the oldest populations in the nation it has one of the poorest populations in the nation has one of the most uneducated populations in the nation if you're not willing to to minister to those people and ultimately equip and raise those people up then you're going to die on the vine because that's really the largest Percentage of Appalachia. Could you speak to a little bit about the role of women? I think about the incredible role of women really across the church at large, but particularly, I know I've heard you speak of this before. Could you tell us the role of women in the spread of the denomination, the strength of the denomination, and not just origin, but also today?
0: Without women in our churches today, yesterday, or even next year. We would not be a church that has compassion. We would not be a church that would focus on missions. We would not be a church that would focus on others. We've spent so long building grand and glorious buildings, truly something that Dr. Phineas Brzee, if he were alive today, would be shocked at because he didn't want these grand and glorious buildings. What he wanted us to do was to go out and help the poor, was to go out and help the downtrodden. And the women in the church have reminded us that we are called to do something extraordinary, not just ordinary. And so women from the very beginning have been a vital part of our mission movement, have been a vital part of keeping our churches going when men were struggling with addiction or called to war or they were called into a working environment that took them away from the home it was women who would bring their children it was women who kept our sunday schools alive etc but it wasn't until the 2000s that we elected our first woman general superintendent again we started out with two general superintendents now we have six because they travel all around the world and they literally have to lay their hands to ordain someone and we've just recently in the last 10 years elected our second Woman general superintendent. But I got to be honest, in our church today, there is heavy pushback against women in leadership. So, for instance, in my own local board, for the longest time, we had 20% of women on our church leadership team. Yet the women made up more than 50% of who we had sitting in our chairs. And so we have to do a better job as Nazarenes to be more inclusive to the women. And I understand for other denominations, this is foreign. This is unbiblical. This is unscriptural. I hear you. But for our denomination, we feel that women are equal to men in the calling to lead local churches, to be in leadership, and to continue to teach. And so without women, The churches of the Nazarene here in Appalachia would not be here. For instance, Summit Church of the Nazarene in the 1950s had a woman pastor. Now, I talked to her daughter recently. She's gone on to be with the Lord, that pastor, but I talked to her daughter in the last couple of months, and she said, my mother had huge pushback when she pastored in Flatwoods, when she pastored in Summit, when she pastored in other areas in this region, because men did not want a woman preacher. They believed her place was in the home. Yet her husband was very supportive at allowing her to pastor. We're still having some of that pushback today. But what I've tried to do, especially in my last three churches, is to find women who are called by God and to help encourage them in their walk. And so currently on my own staff, I have two women pastors. One is an outreach pastor, one is a care pastor, because I value that everyone, meaning man or woman, can be called into ministry and to serve the local church. I have a
2: question now relative to Appalachia. I do teach a course in apologetics in Appalachia, defending the faith in Appalachia. I take everyone back to the end of World War II up through today with some history. And a, a noted time for missional outreach in Appalachia came on the heels of the election of Lyndon B. Johnson with Great Society and War on Poverty. How did the Nazarenes respond to the media focus on southern West Virginia, eastern Kentucky, when the American people suddenly became aware of the poverty situation? As I understand, there's been a good deal of outreach to the poor in eastern Kentucky from the Nazarenes. So you might detail some of the the response then and if there's anything ongoing now.
0: So in 1964, when Lyndon Johnson came to Martin County, right here in eastern Kentucky, and he stood on a porch, and he declared the war on poverty and began to look at the issues and then toured central Appalachia, he was within yards, really a, a couple of miles of where we today have an Nazarene Compassionate Ministry Center. And we have always been people who have been working behind the scenes without the light on us, because again, we believe we're serving God, we're not serving man mankind as a whole. And what I mean by that is that we're not looking to be on magazine covers or get our name in lights. And so we've been in these regions. We have been serving in classrooms and we've served in hospitals and we've served in soup kitchens, but we've never really gone about publicizing who we've been and why we've done it. Again, it goes back to that we're supposed to focus on poverty and addiction and broken families. And right here in Appalachia, we're called to do that. As a pastor myself, when I came here four years ago and I sat behind my desk for two months and the church was running well, I said, we have to do more we became inward focus. And sadly, since the 1950s, many of our local churches have turned inwards, our own needs, our own issues, and they forgot about the community. It's only this new generation, this Z generation, the end of the millennial generation that's saying, we don't want to belong to a social club. We want to go and do things. So really, since the 1980s, We have focused on world missions, but now just in the last 10 years, we've declared the United States and Canada a world region to where missionaries from Korea, where we had evangelized at one time in South Korea, are now coming to our area, where we evangelized in South America. They're now coming to our area and they're becoming missionaries to us because we are living in this society where we call ourselves Christian. Because our grandmother, our grandfather were Christians, but truly we are unchristian as a people. And so sadly, we have many churches of the Nazarene that are 50 people or less, that are more focused on themselves than the people around them. I am trying to lead my local church out of that mindset of us, meaning local church, to them, which is us, meaning the larger community. And that's why I serve in a soup kitchen. That's why we serve in the Salvation Army and do other things in the community.
3: In the late 1980s, my parents got a divorce. I was eight years old. When we moved, we lived in one place for a little while, and then my mom purchased a home. She worked at the local bank, and so we moved from one community to another. The home that we purchased had been a Nazarene Church Parsonage. So in the strangest way, I have a little bit of Nazarene Church heritage in my own life, and that was such a great house, and it was such a neat place to live and grow up. And those folks from that local Nazarene Church often came and uh, sought to minister to us, uh, really a single mom and a couple boys living there. And so, Desmond, this is a really easy transition How would you characterize the state of the Nazarene movement today? Is it like the United Methodist with more conservative and then more progressive wings? How would
0: you characterize that today? Well, when you just look at the statistics across the board, 76.6% of Nazarene churches in USA, Canada are 99 people or less. And of that, just a little over 50% of them are 50 people or less. And so we've gone back to who we began. We began small, and we celebrated our mega churches in our denomination, and now we're going back smaller. I believe the reason is twofold, is that we took our eye off of our call. Who did God call us to be? And the second thing is, is that we've played too much politics. And so, yes, we have always been a conservative denomination, so much so that we cared about your hair, we cared about how you dressed, what jewelry you wore, etc. We've left that legalism, but we have still clung to the flag we've still clung to patriotism you know dr brzee he used to always keep an american flag over his pulpit and so you would see it that here he is this proud american and you find that in a lot of our churches today but what's happening is this new generation that I believe are pulling us back to Brazil in a lot of ways, meaning to help the poor, to work with the addicted, they're challenging us on this social justice gospel. And sadly, we're becoming split between left and right. So our articles of faith, our belief system has stayed the same, it's never changed. Yet we're being challenged every four years, similar to the Methodist, where are we going to stand in gay marriage, for instance? And I, for one, believe that over the next decade or two, we're going to have the big row, just like the Methodist Church will. But I believe that the evangelism that we did and the church planting that we did in Africa and Asia and South America are going to hold the feet to the fire because we are a global denomination to the North American church. And so even if we go left, and sadly, there are some left-leaning districts and left-leaning churches that our brothers and sisters from around the world will keep us conservative and will keep us to the doctrine of holiness. And part of holiness to me is marriage between a man and a woman. And there is nothing more unbiblical than to say it cannot or it can be, We meaning we can marry. And so if we are going to split, which I don't ever believe we'll get to that portion. And if we do, I think I'm going with the conservatives. So that's a political statement that I never even preached from my own pulpit.
2: If you could desire the Lord to move in one, one or two big ways, what would you like to see in the uh, Appalachian region?
0: That our hearts would turn to others. We live in a world today where we pull into our own driveway. Some of us get out in a garage and we go directly into our house. We don't wave to our neighbors. And to begin to think, where is Jesus at work, and where can I come up alongside of him and begin that work with him? I believe it's, it's important for a podcast like this that we have conversations where uh, Dr. Shamblin and I, we can disagree on some tenets of our faith. But we find in our foundation a Jesus that we both love, that we've sold out to. We believe strongly in a community that when it is not corrupted by vices of the world can be stronger, where families can be put together instead of broken apart, where people in the richest nation in the world don't have to live in poverty. I believe that's Jesus. If you go back to the Old Testament and see where Jesus was. Jesus got upset occasionally. Jesus would uh, question the religious leaders. And I think it's important that we ask the tough questions, that we examine what is right and what is wrong in today's society. And sometimes that makes us politically unpopular. But at the end of the day, I don't want to be politically popular. I want to be rooted and grounded in Christ in all that we do. And so here in Appalachia, we need churches, regardless of denomination, who love other people, but stay true to God's word, who preach God's word week in and week out.
3: Well, Dr. Barrett, it's been wonderful to spend this time with you. Dr. Phillips, it's been great to have you on the podcast co-hosting this episode. It's been so informative and inspirational to hear of a denomination that, though, like the rest, are struggling to find their footing in this new world are returning back to the mission field where people are in such a desperate time and a desperate need. Let me encourage you to follow our podcast, share this podcast with others uh, so that we can see the glory of God in clear view in Appalachia.
1: You know, sometimes we live in our own boxes and we can't imagine how God could possibly be glorified in any other church but our own. And from one denomination to another, there are doctrinal differences that conflict with our convictions, and that will dictate where we choose to worship. But it's important to remember this. Go where the gospel is taught, and scripture is upheld as the infallible word of God. Go where the lost are evangelized and discipled, and living Christ-honoring lives. Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute exist as a resource, and no matter what need you may have, Rex Howe and Dr. Matt Shamlin want you to reach out to them today. Rex Howe is the president of Tri-State Bible College. You can contact him by email at rex.howe at tsbc.edu. And you can reach out to Dr. Matt Shamblin at the Appalachian Ministry Institute by email matt.shamblin at tspc.edu. The Level Paths podcast is an outreach of Tri State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute.